Apprentice here in person, and for those of you joining us online, welcome as well. I want to mention um, we got some uh, books um, by Cross or, uh, from Crossway. We got 20 books of Rediscover Church. It's a uh, book written by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman about uh, essentially getting back to church in a post-COVID world. I don't think many of you have an issue with that, obviously, you're being here. Uh, but if you know people that are perhaps struggling or wondering why we gather and so forth, uh, we have uh, 20 copies in the back. You can take it, you can read it, you can share it with that person who hasn't been in church in a while. So it's a, it's a tool that you are more than welcome uh, to take, or it's a tool for you yourself to become uh, more ed- educated, more equipped onto why we gather um, as a church. Let's, uh, before we begin our message, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for allowing us uh, the privilege that we have here in America to to gather and to worship you freely. Help us not to waste it. Help us to be good stewards of it. Uh, Father, with Veterans Day coming up this week, ask that you'd be with uh, the veterans um, as the country seeks to honor and serve them, but in doing so, that can also be a trigger for some. So help them comfort them, encourage them, especially the veterans that are struggling to find identity outside of the service, those who have retired, those who have separated, uh, be with them, Um, encourage them, help them to find identity in your son, help them find identity in the truth, Uh, help them to start living for eternity if, if they're not already, and may we as a church come alongside them, may we comfort them, may we pray for them, um, may we be witnesses of your grace and of your truth and that what you have is greater than what anything that they have experienced and you are strong enough, powerful enough to heal them as well, Father. Father, be with us uh, this morning as we hear from your word. Grant us wisdom, discernment. Help us to be focused and attentive. Keep away any of the anxieties, burdens, distractions that might cause us to adrift off in our own thoughts or into our own concerns. Help us to hear your word so we may be molded by it. Help us to lay down our idols. If we feel the the prick of the Spirit, help us to receive it. Help us to wrestle with it faithfully. And may we seek your glory in all things. Father, we ask this by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, to 1 Kings chapter 12. We'll be in verses 25 through 32. Um, And yes, it is 32, not 33. I know chapter 12 ends with verse 33, but we're saving verse 33 for chapter 13, as it is the context, it is the setting of chapter 13. In a post-COVID world, there's been a lot of talk in regards to what the church should look like or how the church should act. Some have called for a return to the essentials, the pandemic bringing uh, to light. Maybe we've been focusing on the wrong things, and in part due to too much innovation. Others, however, on the other end of the spectrum, are calling for more innovation, more flexibility, more options, more creativity in regards to what the church can and ought to look like. The issue with innovations and innovating church is that it either draws people to the church, that is the gathered uh, assembly of God's people, or it draws people away from the gathered assembly of God's people. Well, in our passage, we read an example of innovation. And with this example, I want us to gain a framework of which we can evaluate innovations and then discern if they are beneficial or if under the guise of good intentions, they are actually leading us astray. We'll start by reading our passage and then looking at the four violations of God's word of which Jeroboam commits with his innovative practices. So let's begin. Let's read 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 32. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Peniel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to the Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. 
Behold, your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. So remember the context here. We've talked about King Solomon. King Solomon's reign ended with him going into idolatry. His, the many foreign wives that he had married that he loved so much seduced him into idolatry. As judgment, God told Solomon, your kingdom, it's going to split into two. But I'm going to wait um, until you pass away, when your son ascends to the throne, I'm going to give ten tribes to another man. And that man is Jeroboam. So in the last week, we talked about how Rehoboam and his folly caused that split uh, to happen. Well, this week, we read of Jeroboam establishing his kingship over Israel, over the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. And he begins doing this uh, by establishing his capital. His capital is going to be in Shechem. So this is his place of administration. And then he moves to secure his reign. And he moves to secure his reign from both external threats and internal threats. He builds up Peniel to secure his reign to defend against external threats from the east. Uh, Ammon and Aram, which are off to the east, Peniel is along the uh, Jabbok River, uh, across from Mahanaim. Uh, if you're familiar with the, with the place, Peniel, it's the place where uh, Jacob, in chapter 32 of Genesis, wrestles with God, God touches his hip, and it's also where uh, Jacob gets, and the nation of Israel gets the name Israel from. But more significantly, most of this passage is focused on the internal threats that Jeroboam is trying to secure his kingdom from. He does this by encouraging his people not to worship in Jerusalem. He's worried about them going to Jerusalem, and by going to Jerusalem, Going back to the land of Judah, perhaps being reminded of what the United Kingdom looks like, perhaps being reminded of, of how they should be faithful and how they should be uh, gathered together as one nation, he's worried that they might rebel, that they might be seduced to follow Rehoboam. And this is where Jeroboam is where he goes off the rails. He's no longer on the path of blessing that God offered him. You remember when Ahijah the Shilonites came to Jeroboam and told him, hey, he tore, took off the new garment, tore it into, uh, into ten pieces, and gave the ten pieces to Jeroboam. Say, look, because of Solomon's sin, not because of anything that you've done, but because of Solomon's sin, God is going to put you in a place of authority. He's going to make you king over the ten tribes. And if you are faithful to his commandments, to his statutes, walk in his ways, you do all that he asks of you to do, he will give you all that your heart desires. But right from the get-go, Jeroboam abandons that faithfulness. And he does this by creating two places of worship. One place of worship is in the place of Dan. Dan is in the far northern part of the northern kingdom. Right? It's, it's near Mount Hermon, and it's near one of the major uh, sources of the Jordan River. And then the other place is Bethel, on the southern portion of the kingdom, closer to Judah, closer to uh, Jerusalem. And what he is doing here, essentially, and we'll talk more about the specifics of this in a moment, but what, what's going on here is essentially is an innovation of religion, creating something new and instituting new practices of worship. And, and maybe you're wondering, well, what's wrong with that? Well, in Jeroboam's particular instance, a lot, as we will see in a bit. But in other cases, innovation isn't always negative. It isn't always quite so clear if this is bad or if this is good for worship. But we need to understand that any innovation, even beneficial innovation, is potentially dangerous. When we innovate, we're essentially giving up something in order to do another thing, a new thing. And again, it's not always bad, but our motives, they must be pure and holy. So let us continue to examine Jeroboam's actions so that we can learn more about this particular innovation and then consider what we may learn from this in our day and age. This innovation by Jeroboam, it is one that's rooted in selfish motives, right? It's not holiness. This is not a holy, pure, righteous motive. It is selfishness. It's rooted in insecurity. 
And even some commentators even think that Jeroboam is in these actions. He's well-intended, but he's a fool if he is well-intended. Because some say that he's still seeking to glorify God by these actions. Right? He's, he's created places of worship for Yahweh. And it, it, not Jerusalem, but there's still places of worship. And there's still places of worship for Yahweh. But his actions are no better than the actions of Aaron's sons um, in Leviticus 10 when they thought they were doing something well, well-intended, by offering strange fire, in other words, unauthorized act of worship towards Yahweh, and Yahweh consumed them with fire. See, Jeroboam's motive is one born out of selfish ambition. Right? We talked about selfish ambition last week. Paul in Philippians 2.3 talks about this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Jeroboam is a great example of the exact opposite of this verse. He's, he, this is selfish ambition. He is insecure. He's not thinking of others. He's putting himself, his kingdom, first above all others. He wants to keep the people from leaving him. He wants to keep Rehoboam from gaining power. What Jeroboam has essentially done is he has elevated secular concerns, secular matters, over and above the commands of God. Secular concerns should never lead, lead us to violate the commands of God. And that's exactly what Jeroboam has done. So let's look at four ways in which Jeroboam does violate the commands of God. One of the commands, and the biggest one, is that Jeroboam violates the second commandment. Right? The second commandment, we get that from Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. This is the commandment that while Moses was up on Mount Sinai with God, talking with God, that Aaron and Israel, Israel's like, where is he? What's taking him so long? And so they give gold to Aaron, and they car- Aaron graves out uh, carves out an image of a golden calf, and this is the commandment that they violate in, verse, in chapter 32 of Exodus in verse 4. And note the words of the people of Israel in verse 4 of Exodus 32. And he, that's Aaron, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The very words that Jeroboam used. So imagine the Israelite in exile, or I mean, even in this day, the Levitical priest, uh, Israel hearing, okay, he's made two golden calves. I mean, right away when you hear golden calf, if you know the Torah, if you know the Pentateuch, you know, you know Exodus, the, the story of it, you should be like, golden calf, that's bad, right? 3,000 men fell on this day because of the golden calf, and here is our king making two of them, not just one, but two of them. And then he repeats the very words that were said at the base of Mount Sinai back in Exodus. So God, he takes this command seriously. And Jeroboam's violation of it, Jeroboam becomes a king of a standard, not a good standard. But as we go through kings, uh, Jeroboam is the standard of bad kings for quite some time because of these actions. We need to recognize, even today, the danger of violating the second commandment. The danger of creating images of gods, even ones we may not inherently worship. And yes, the second commandment, it is primarily about idolatry, right? It's not simply about making, having a painting of Jesus. It's about worship. It's about creating an image that leads to worship. But it's also about the means of which idolatry enters into a person's life. A painting of Jesus in of itself may not be idolatrous, but it is if it leads people to worship a false understanding of who Jesus is, if it portrays an aspect of Jesus that's not true to Scripture, and people come to worship that, then it's an issue. Consider movies and shows where actors are playing Jesus or even God himself. Right? Essentially, a movie or show is a, like a talking painting. If a painting says something, imagine something that has a personality, that has tone, that has humor, that has um, actions to it. Consider the popular series Chosen now. What does the actor, what does the script, the fallible script of that show, what does it reflect about Jesus? We have to be careful here. 
We have to be cautious. I'm not saying it is sinful, it is wrong. But we must be careful, we must be cautious when it comes to this is Jesus. No, it's not. It's some man playing Jesus, and there's a lot of artistic license with it. God's word is holy and sufficient. And when we add to it, and we do, we're, we're, we probably do add to it when we have somebody playing Jesus and the way that he looks at somebody, the way that he laughs, the way that he plays, the, the tone of his voice, the things that are not given to us. Clearly, in Scripture, we must be careful. I'm not saying you can't watch it, but I am saying be careful. Another sin made by Jeroboam is encouraging worship at places not designated, not chosen by Yahweh. As we have seen and discussed with Solomon, Jerusalem, the temple, that is a designated place of worship. Right? This is rooted in Deuteronomy 12, verses 5 and 7. It reads, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. Right? Think of the cloud filling the temple. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And remember in, in chapter 8 of 1 Kings, this is where Solomon, he's praying, right? In the big, long prayer that he gives, this is Yahweh, anytime people look to this temple, anytime people look to this place, answer this prayer. But Jeroboam's like, nope, not anymore. I got two other places you guys can worship. I got two other places you can bring your offerings, and that is Bethel and Dan. And Jeroboam does this because, again, he's insecure. He wants to keep people to himself. Religious uh, fears and political fears, secular issues have motivated him to this, not holiness and not faithfulness. So he essentially makes worship more convenient. He makes two places that are closer than Jerusalem. Why are you still going to Jerusalem? You no longer need to go to Jerusalem, especially those of you in Dan. That's a long trip. Why go all the way down there? Why take the risk? You might be robbed. You might be killed by wild animals. Who knows? It's risky. Keep it safe. Keep it convenient. Dan is right here. Or if, if Bethel's closer, Bethel is right here. You don't have to go all the way down to Jerusalem. You can stay within the kingdom. You can stay close to home. We need to beware of anything that makes worship more convenient. It's not that we can't make it more convenient, but we need to be very cautious with it because often the motive for such a thing is often rooted in laziness and selfishness. We need to ask ourselves, is faithfulness to our holy God not worth the effort that, has, that is already asked of us? What benefit would convenience bring? And sometimes, yes, convenience, like if we make the word of God more convenient to, for people who are in persecuted areas to receive, yes, that makes sense. But when we talk about making church more convenient, we have to be careful with that. Right? It used to be a time when people, where you come to a church, it was the preacher who sat down, people and the congregation stood up. But then they brought the pews in. And when you brought the pews in, that was the concern. People are going to sit down, they're going to fall asleep, it's too comfortable, it's too convenient. So we've got to be mindful of these things. You're not in sin right now because you're, you're, you're sitting down, that's not the point. But there is a danger, and we need to be aware of these issues. The third transgression Jeroboam made was changing the calendar date for the Feast of Tabernacles. They, they had, Judah had their Feast of Tabernacles in the seventh month, and the Jeroboam's like, well, ours would be in the eighth month. And some have argued he's doing that because the, the seasonal changes in the northern kingdom is a little bit different than the southern kingdom. But I mean, geographically, they're not that far off. And two, God appointed this time for all of Israel, for all the promised land, but Jeroboam's like, no, we are going to have our own feast. And so he changes that. That's the third thing that he changes. The final sin in this passage committed by Jeroboam was he makes service in the God's priesthood more convenient. The priests, now, they don't have to be Levites. They can be whoever they want. Not people who are actually chosen by God, commanded by God. But hey, if you towed the party line, you too can serve at these places of worship you too can serve Yahweh. This is not unlike allowing women who feel called or gifted to be elders and pastors. 
It's more convenient. Consider the church, where if you look at the stats, it's dominated by women. The majority of people who attend church now are the women. The church is anemic of men, especially when it comes to people who serve the church. It's mostly women who serve the church. There's a lack of qualified men. There's a lack of men who step up to serve the church, to fill the roles of ministry. So it's more convenient to have that, that woman, that, that lady that's, that feels gifted, that feels called, and who has demonstrated a, a gift with teaching or communicated to, we need somebody to fill the pulpit. We'll have you fill the pulpit. We need somebody as an elder. We'll have you as an elder. Not only is it more convenient, but it's more pleasing to the masses. In a day and age where woman equality is, is it's highly valued, and woman equality should be highly, highly valued, the church has misunderstood it. The church thinks, yes, we're all one in Christ, therefore we all get to serve Christ as we see fit, but that's not the point. As we talked about our women's gathering this past Tuesday, we are all one in Christ, but we each have our own different roles. We each have our own parts of the body of which we are called to serve. Me as the pastor, in the eyes of Christ, I am no more greater than any of you in the pew. I am no higher than the person doing AV or the greeter or in the nursery. We are all one in Christ, male and female. There's no partiality there. But some of us are called to do certain things, and others of us are called to do other things. And this goes against God's word. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 5 through 9, not going to read them, but those are the expectations of eldership. The role of elder, the office of elder, is related, is, is restricted specifically to the men, to the head of the households. And preaching, by extension, is an elder function. Second Chronicles 11, uh, verses 13 through 17, uh, which talks more about Jeroboam uh, removing the priests, uh, the Levites, from his land. It's, uh, uh, it reads this, The priests and Levites, who were in all Israel, presented themselves to him, that's Rehoboam, from all places where they lived. For the, for the Levites left their common lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem, because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat idols and for the calves that he had made. And those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice the Lord, the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah. And for three years they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, secure. For they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. Here we have a biblical example, a biblical precedent and reason for leaving places that are unfaithful, churches that are unfaithful, for churches that are faithful. Here we have the Levites who are cast out, faithful priests, men called by God. And Jeroboam's like, nope, you're not serving my agenda well. You're too, you stick to the word too much. You're out of here. So they head south. But it's not just them. Right in verse 16 in 2 Chronicles 11, it's also all those, all the other Israelites of the northern kingdom, all they who had their hearts set on Yahweh, they followed them too like this great ejection. The Levites go, and all the faithful people went with them. Faithful people didn't stick around. They didn't go, boy, you know, this is, this is the land of, our, of, of my fathers. No, they were more worried about faithfulness, and they went where faithfulness was. Now, if you're in a church where unfaithfulness is happening, the first thing you should do is engage with the leadership, right? Try to communicate with them, speak with them, correct them, rebuke them, see where they're coming from, and see how they respond. And if then, if they continue on faithfulness, don't stick around. Leave. Your soul isn't worth it. And by staying, you're supporting that unfaithful and unholy ministry. And here we have a good biblical example um, that sets a precedent for it. Now, let us consider the root cause of Jeroboam's innovation. Right? This is the crux of the matter. Why did Jeroboam do what he did? Why did he innovate the way that he innovated? Why did he feel the urge to create two places of worship and go against the commands of Scripture, regardless of what his intentions were? Essentially, it's because he lacks faith. He doesn't trust God. Either he doesn't believe in Yahweh, or he believes in Yahweh, but not completely. He doesn't believe that the God who gave him this position can keep it like he said he would that God could continue to bless him and give him what he wants, so he's taking it into his own hands. He's taking control of his situation. And this is often where unhelpful and unholy innovation is birthed. 
in the midst of a lack of trust with God, in a season of unease, in moments of doubt, when, when we are like Peter falling in the water and we're drowning in the midst of it and we struggle to keep our eyes on Christ, this is where innovation often creeps in. Consider churches that struggle with growth. Our numbers, they're going down. Why are they shrinking? How can we get them back up? Well, let's think of an innovative way to get the numbers up. Or that church on the other side of town, they're just booming. They're exploding. Why are they growing so much? Why can't we grow like they are growing? Well, what are they doing? Let's model that. Let's mimic that. Or finances. It's going to be hard to pay the budget this year, the bills. It's going to be hard to keep the electricity on. So how can we get our money back up? How can we get people to pour money back into the church? What creative ways, what creative ways can we do ministry to increase that? Or for the pastor who's not well-received by his people, a pastor who's struggling with loneliness, that he's disliked, or he's, he has a fear of, of being fired. So he goes to an innovative ways. He, he goes to the ways of the world. He conforms to that because his secular concerns are outweighing his concerns of faith and holiness. Or in our own personal lives, we have moments where we fear losing our friends because of our faith. We're worried about relationships being damaged, ruined. We're worried about our reputation. What will people think of us if they understand that what I believe in is viewed as archaic, patriarchal, that it is bigoted, that it's homophobic? So I, I need to redress my faith. I need to dress it up in a way that's more appeasing, that's more appealing. I need to be more innovative, more creative about my faith. It is in these moments that we must do what Jeroboam failed to do. Call to mind one who has called us and who is the one doing the work. Jeroboam should have kept calling back that day when Ahijah the Shilonite came to him and said, hey, God is going to make you king. And Jeroboam should have looked past on his life about how God did make him king, how it did come to fruition. We need to remember that we are mere instruments in the hands of a sovereign and gracious God. We all need to remember that it's Christ who builds his church, right? It's not us, and he doesn't need us, but in his grace and his generosity, he uses us. But again, we're the instrument, right? We're the power tool, but we're not the power, right? The power comes from the power source, who is Christ, and he uses us. Without Christ, there's no power in the tool, and it's useless, right? Chainsaw is not going to cut word, wood unless there's power running through it. That's all we are. And that's a beautiful thing to have the creator of all things, right? The one who created all things out of nothing to take you and use you as an instrument for his creative, redemptive work. So we must remember he is the one who builds his church, especially when things go south, whether it's in our personal lives or whether it's here at the church and things with the church seem to go south. We must remain strong and faithful. We must not be like a doubting wave in the ocean. We must not be double-minded. We must not be seeking out novelty and innovation to give us direction or even a hand, right? When the waters overcome us, when we slip, when we fall, for whatever reason, we must not look for innovation or novelty to bring us back to the surface. We must call out as Peter did, Lord, help me. Reach out our hand towards Christ. Seek Christ. Pray to Christ. Plead for Christ. Keep our eyes focused on him, seeking holiness and faithfulness. Come what may. And again, it's not that innovation cannot be helpful. Right? Let's just be clear on that. It's not that innovation cannot be helpful. It certainly can. Just like medicine can be helpful. Yes, God is sovereign, but God has also given us medicine and certain technologies to help us in our lives. They are meant to be a blessing, and innovation at times is meant to be a blessing for his purposes. But if we're not grounded in God's word, then we can be led astray. Here, I hope, when the, when the lockdown in, in uh, May of 2020 ended, and we as an elder board were considering opening up the doors, and we were considering, well, why do we gather in person? We have this online thing that's going, but why would we gather? Why do we need to keep the doors open? And what's going to drive our practices and our policies in regards to the gathering? And it came down to three things. The first is the observance of sacraments, the observance of communion and baptism. You can't do that virtually. 
We, you need to be in person. Communion is, is fellowship. It's a partaking of the fellowship. And there's no partaking of fellowship when you're on the computer screen. The second is worship. Right here, I hope we don't have Nate just up here putting on a show. The, the, the intention is to have you all sing with him. He facilitates the singing process by providing the background music and at least one good quality voice uh, that we can hear, despite how we sound, right? To lead us, to guide us through the notes and, and so forth. Because it is a blessing. Like if, if it was just about watching the worship team, yeah, you can stay home and do that. Just like you can watch a YouTube video and, and watch it. But it is a blessing to hear our brothers and sisters in Christ after a long week of seeking faithfulness and holiness in a world that hates the people of God, that hates our Lord and Savior, to hear them lift up their voices, to sing the truths, the promises, the beliefs that we believe, and to be reminded of God's grace and mercies in our lives. And then finally, the third thing was fellowship. The, the gathering of brothers and sisters in Christ that we do here at Hope, especially after the service, it's a beautiful thing when, when we just talk about life. We sometimes correct and, and rebuke uh, one another in those moments as we're called to do. But we do that after the service and, and we were thinking, well, we can't fellowship. What's the point of gathering? But we are called to fellowship. And I love how we fellowship here on, on Sundays. Sometimes you all linger here for a really long time and, and that's a blessing. And it's a blessing when the Packers are playing because you don't linger so long. <laughs> but we do this because Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19, they're not up there, but we're called to do this. Sing songs, sing praises to one another, to teach, to admonish one another, gratitude and thanksgiving. We're called to do this. And so after the lockdown, that's what we were thinking. Why do we gather? And honestly, we were doing that beforehand anyway. We just articulated it. We made it more clear. That way when pushback came, well, why are you guys open? This is why. Right? We weren't doing church any differently beforehand. We, we just kept going. But we just were more clear about it. And if you want about, well, what about the proclamation of the word? Right? Clearly we gather for that. But I mean, honestly, if you're at home uh, and, I, and I know you and you know me, the proclamation of the word is the same. But it is definitely more beneficial in person. If we don't stay grounded in God's word, we will conform to this world. We will allow secular concerns, secular matters to rise above the commands of Scripture. It's easy to get in line with the rest of the world. In doing so, we will allow innovation, even good innovation, to cause us to drift away from the holiness of God. And remember, we don't drift into holiness, right? We, our natural drift, if you just, like you can float on the lacrosse river, you don't have to paddle. I mean, you do if you want to avoid the trees. But you can just float. You don't have to paddle. And that's the same thing with unholiness. You don't do anything. That's where you drift. You drift into unholiness. But if you want to enter into holiness, you know God's holiness, you have to discipline. You have to do things. Your natural flesh, your natural tendency in the currents of this world will take you from the holiness of God. If we do that, we will not be able to live out Romans 12, 2, where Paul writes and tells us, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's why we're talking about this, so that we may discern by testing what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And to live this way, it's not going to be popular. The masses aren't going to like it. It's not going to please the world. It won't win the world, but it will win the sheep who are lost. It's not convenient. Oftentimes, this is the harder thing to do. And it's not always easy. There's nothing about our faith, very, very little things, very little about actually living our faith out in a fallen world that is easy. Last week, we talked about how to deal with insecurity and arrogance with Rehoboam, right? Things that Rehoboam himself was guilty of. And, that, and that's the same issues with Jeroboam here, his lack of security, right? He's very insecure, and thus he's innovating ways. He's trying to create tangible things to secure his reign. So this morning, I want us to consider, rather than talking about those things again, which we talked about last week, and if you missed that message, just go back. It's online, YouTube, uh, Spotify, website. You can check it out. But this week, I want us to consider um, four somewhat random uh, scriptural references, random as, as in I was just looking for verses that we could use, uh, no really science behind it. 
Uh, but random verses that help us to see how, look at, excuse me, look at these verses and see how innovations may or may not help us to be faithful to them. First one is 1 Peter 2.9. Peter writes, you are a chosen race, race a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, those who are the chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that's anyone who looks to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? A, a believer, somebody who's born again, who is redeemed. And Peter tells us that the reason you are this is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. So when we come to innovative things, we need to ask ourselves, does it help us proclaim the excellencies of him or does it do something else? Does the music that we use, the style of the music, does it help proclaim the excellencies of Christ or is it proclaiming something else? Does it appease the flesh or God's holiness? The content of the music, the lyrics, are they true? Are they faithful? Does the lyrics proclaim the excellencies of him? What about PowerPoint? Is PowerPoint, that's an innovative thing. Is that something that helps proclaim the excellencies of Christ or is it a distraction? Any use of media, we need to ask that question. Or some churches, they'll do service projects on Sunday, right? Be the church. And so they won't have a worship church service They'll actually just go out and serve the church. The question is, does that help proclaim the excellencies of Christ? 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul writes, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the truth. So here, Paul is encouraging Timothy and all of us to be a worker that's approved, rightly approved, one who rightly handles the word of truth. So do the innovations in our lives, do they help us in this endeavor? Let's consider devotions. Are devotions helpful in this task? Let's think about it. A devotion often is a short reading, right? It's not the whole counsel of God. It's, it's, it's depending on the book, it's only 365 short readings, and it's usually just a very snippet. Usually the actual what you read is more than actually the passage itself. So if this is your main course and this is all you're getting, it's not helpful in this regard. Because again, it's conditioning you to read short passages or short readings. You're not getting the whole counsel of God. You're only getting the counsel of God that the author wants you to get in accordance to the theme, the topic of that particular devotion. And you're not being equipped. Think about it. You read this devotion, yes, you may be encouraged. You may be challenged. And it might be a blessing to you. Absolutely, right? Nothing wrong with a devotion in that way. But when it's your main course, you're not being equipped because what's happening is, say they share a passage. You don't know why they came to that point. They just kind of dive into it. There's no background to it. There's no context to it. And so you may be challenged. You may be encouraged. But how are you equipped to take that passage, that scripture, and apply it to other areas of life, to apply it to others? You're not going to be able to because you never rustled over the passage yourself. You might not even know the context. That's the danger of devotions. Again, it has its place, right? As long as the Word of God, reading it is your main dish, you can have a place on your plate for devotions, right? If you have the appetite for it after you ate the main dish, by all means, you can do that, especially if some of the devotions are excellent, but they are not to replace the Word of God. Consider reading plans, right? Reading plans haven't been around forever. That's a type of innovation, Reading plans, they train the body and mind to read the Word of God in snippets, don't they? You read your assigned task for the day, and then you close the Word of God, you put it away. And if you're lucky, you'll open up the Word of God tomorrow, and maybe two days in a row, right? And, and you don't want to read more, even if you're led, because, boy, if I read more, then I'm going into tomorrow's reading, everything's going to be off, and I get that because I feel that tension sometimes. But we need to be careful with that. We should just be able to open up God's Word and just read it. Sit down for an hour, read it, and whenever, wherever we get to at the end of the hour, that's where we pick, off, pick up tomorrow. And not just thinking, oh, I need to get my three chapters in. No, I, I want to read God's Word because it's, 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 I, I delight in it. It is beautiful. It is, it is tasty. It is good for the soul. I, I want it. I don't read it simply so I can check off the box. Now, don't get me wrong. I personally prefer checking off a box too. 
but that's not our main motive. So we have to be careful with this, with our reading plans. Maybe the, you get a reading plan that has you read 10 chapters a day, right? If that's the case. If you struggle with reading large amounts of scripture in one sitting, get a reading plan that's going to have you read 10, 15 chapters, or is going to have you read the Bible in 90 days. If you've never done that, you will be blessed by it because you will see things, you will read things that you miss when you're constantly cutting off the train of thought that God's Word has in those letters, in those books, because you're constantly stopping three chapters in, two chapters in, five chapters in, right? I mean, read like all of Keynes all at once, and you will see things that you just did not see beforehand. Think of Bible softwares or Google, right? I use Bible software often, but I gotta be careful. It's like a calculator. It can make me weak. It can make me lazy. Nothing beats opening up Scripture and turning pages. Or if we just go to Google and, and, and try to find the answer rather than going to God's Word. Think about how we disciple. Do we take the time, the energy, the investment that's needed to actually make disciples? Or do we look for the newest and latest program, latest curriculum that can do it for us rather than we ourselves investing into that person? and taking the time it takes to cultivate the soil and to allow the seed to grow and to weed the weeds and, and to do the work of a farmer, so to speak. Remember, we exist to proclaim his excellencies. Therefore, we ought to discipline ourselves well to do that well, meaning we should abstain from practices that make us lazy and efforts of holiness. We ought to be willing to travel long distances, we ought to be willing to travel to Jerusalem for faithfulness rather than being um, lazy and stopping at Bethel and Dan simply because it is more convenient. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, God says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprouts, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do we trust God's word? Do we trust his gospel, as Paul tells us in Romans 1, that God's gospel is the power of salvation? Or do we trust innovation? Must we need fog machines, lasers, or dancing stormtroopers on stage. And yes, a church has had dancing stormtroopers on stage as a worship act. That's all it was, it was an act. No worship in it. But that was the intention, to draw people to Christ, to win people to Christ. When we do that, we don't trust God's word. Again, it's not that you can't have a fog machine. But you need to ask yourself, why? Why do we need a fog machine? And is it a slippery slope to somewhere else? Fog machines probably what led to the stormtroopers. <laughs> but again, always ask the motive. I'm not saying fog machines are sin to have. Again, pews used to be viewed that way, perhaps even electric instruments, right? Electrical instruments. So always ask what is the motive. Do we need to dress up his word with good acting and clever script writing? Some of you are really excited about Chosen. Right? I haven't watched it, okay? But some of you, I think you talk more about it than you actually talk about the Word of God. You can point people to chosen if you want, if you think it's a good doorway to the gospel. Absolutely. But make sure you're with them. Make sure you enter into a conversation. In case whatever is shown on chosen is not biblically accurate or it might be an artistic license. You can at least be there to keep them grounded in the Word. You can keep them pointing to it. God, I'm sure God is using that series for for his ministry in powerful ways. But just don't rely on that, right? You are called to proclaim his excellencies. Trust his word. And don't trust on how you are going to say it. Trust his word. Just go to them with the word and trust that his word will return. It will accomplish what he wants it to accomplish. And that will either be to drive the, the reprobate away or it will bring in the sheep who are lost into his fold. Do we need other books to share to our lost friends? to explain what we supposedly believe. Same point, it might not be a TV show, but maybe rather than sharing, sitting down with somebody going through the Gospel of John, we give them a devotion. We give them a book. And we're like, oh, just read this book. And then we just walk away. Well, we're not proclaiming the excellencies. We, we 
should go with them. We should walk with them through the word of God and stop passing off, stop making discipleship convenient and lazy. We should be an appro- appro- a worker who's approved and rightly handling his word. Last verse I want us to look at is John 17, 17. John 17 is the great priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. It's on the night that he's betrayed. It's the final chapter of the upper room discourse in John. And as he's praying to the Father, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And what's Pilate's question later in John? What is truth? Well, Jesus, the word of God, tells us what truth is. His word, Christ in the flesh, uh, Christ who is the word in flesh. God's word is truth, and it's by his truth that we are sanctified. Do we believe that God's word not only saves us, that is, justifies us before God, reconciles us before God, but also sanctifies us? That means us be made righteous, made more holy. Or do we think we could sanctify people more effectively if we could just be nicer and more winsome? And if we could just get people to see how much they ought to love themselves or how to have fun, that church is fun, that we, we can innovate church to where you're going to have a good time. You're going to come here, you're going to laugh, you're, you're not going to be convicted. It's going to be a, a blessing because you're just going to have so much fun at our church and you're going to be compelled to come. We need to recognize people aren't sanctified that way. They're sanctified by God's word. They aren't sanctified by warm fuzzies or felt needs being met. And those two things seem to be driving the church. Well, we just need to be nicer to people, and we'll allow the Spirit to do the work. The Spirit is supposed to work through us. We, who are the royal priesthood, we who are called to proclaim His excellencies. Part of proclaiming His excellencies is calling out sin. You can't proclaim God's holiness without acknowledging what is unholy. It's an inherent thing when you talk about the holiness of God that unholiness is going to become apparent. So warm fuzzies and felt needs being met do not save people, nor does it sanctify them. Nor are people sanctified by practicing innovative things like grave soaking or having angel feathers or gold dust fall from the ceiling. And we could go on, and and perhaps you have some examples, innovative things in your head that you're thinking, I don't think, I think this is a bad example. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I think this is a good one. Well, when you think of innovations, ask yourself these questions. Does it remain true to the Word of God? Does it keep me faithful? Right? We don't want to be like Jeroboam and clearly violate the command of God. Does it bring glory to God? By doing this thing, does it honor Him? Does it proclaim His excellency? Does it bring Him glory? Does it edify, strengthen, and build up the church? Right? Like Bible memorization apps. That's an innovation. Is that not a blessing to the church? If, if used, well, it can be, right? Or does this innovation serve selfish ambition? Does it elevate me and lower the glory of God? Does it elevate me? Does it glorify me more than it does God? Does it appease the wishes and the desires of this world more than the teachings of Scripture? And finally, and this is perhaps the key question, does it bring us closer to Christ or further away from Christ? And that answers all the other questions that we just went over. And not always, but most often, the harder thing, the road less traveled, the less convenient thing, not always, but often, that is the choice that will bring us closer to Christ. Because often, what we must do in order to do that harder thing is to lay down that selfish desire. Boy, it'd be easier. It could be more convenient. But ultimately, usually when we're saying that, it's like it allows me to be lazier, allows me to spend more time on these other things. Now, those other things point to Christ in ministry. Yeah, maybe it is a good thing, right? So you have to evaluate these things. You have to pray about it. You have to talk with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Pastors have to get with other pastors outside of their church to help them to guard themselves, to keep them faithful. So now... I hope you all are more equipped to evaluate these innovations, to be more aware of what we as a church should be doing, should not be doing, and what other churches likewise should be doing, not just here, I hope, but also in your personal lives. And in keeping with God's word, um, let us prepare ourselves for communion now, where in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, it reads, And he, that's Jesus, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it 
and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to pray. When I'm done praying, Jared's going to come up. He will um, administer the elements for you. You take a time to pray, confess any sins that you might have, reconcile to another brother or sister in Christ if you need to. And if you are a believer in Christ, if, you don't, if you're not walking in unrepentant sin, you are welcome to come to uh, the table. You can come up, grab the elements, take them to um, your seat, consume them, and we'll cl- close out a couple more songs of praise. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. Thank you for your word. We thank you for your patience with us. Uh, Maybe we have entered into or we have partook of innovations that haven't been uh, necessarily pleasing or healthy. But we thank you that your word corrects us and teaches us and you are patient with us. Help us to be discerning. Help us with your spirit that dwells within us by your word to spiritually discern what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Help us to make the choices that will bring you glory, that will bring us closer to Christ, uh, that will help us to proclaim all your excellencies, um, and that the lost would know these excellencies and that they would be found. Father, when things get tough, when we feel lonely, um, when this world is pressing down on us, pushing against us, help us to be uh, faithful. Help us to hold fast to the confession um, that we cling to, that we, that we proclaim um, in your Son. And help us as a body to pray for one another. Help us to be with one another. Help us to fellowship with one another, not just here on Sunday morning, but outside of Sundays. Help us to uh, meet together on a regular basis. Help us to support and to be there for one another so that we don't feel lonely, that we will be reminded that there are other faithful brothers and sisters in Christ and that we would be ministered to, Father, just as you have ministered to Elijah um, on the mount. Father, strengthen those who are unable to be here this morning. Be with them wherever they are. Encourage them. For those who are ill, heal them. For those who are still uh, struggling with uh, anxiety, depression, uh, comfort them. Help them find their identity, their security in you. Uh, Father, be with the elements before us. We ask that you would bless the bread and the cup. That as we confess our sins, your spirit would prick us, convict us um, as needed. And that we would confess our sins. Help us to come to this table in unity as one body. If we have something against another brother and sister in Christ, help us to have the courage, the love, to bring it to them so that we would be reconciled and we would know the unity that we are called to to know um, in the body. So, Father, may these gifts of grace, these sacraments, may they be just that. May they give us joy. May they encourage us and refresh us this morning. We who are forgiven sinners all by the blood that was shed by your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And in light of that truth, Father, help us to live in holiness as we anticipate the eternal glory that awaits us when your Son returns. Father, we thank you for all these things and many more. And we ask all these things for your glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.